is risen. <laughs> there we go. I can't hear you all at home, but I hope that you're shouting loud as if I could hear you if you responded. Well, grace and peace to you all this morning, church. We're going to be jumping into Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28 this morning. And so if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to flip on over. We're just going to read verses 1 through 10 together this morning. But I, I have to confess that this morning, this is probably the last place I thought I was going to be. Uh, last night, Paige and I were pretty convinced that our, our child was going to be coming this morning or this afternoon that we would be proclaiming she is born. She is born indeed. But uh, it is good to be here together with you all this Easter morning. Uh, so will you join me in either reading with me or hearing this good news out of Matthew chapter 28, which is the event that not just our church, but churches around the globe are celebrating together this morning. Let me flip there. I should have marked this already. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 out of Matthew's gospel. Matthew tells us the story this way. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look, went to see the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. And ran to his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said all casually, like this was a normal event and greeting. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. God we want to have ears to hear this story afresh and anew this morning. And so extend your grace to us that we too might see our resurrected Lord, clasp his feet and worship him and be sent to proclaim this good news to the nations. It's in Jesus, our resurrected Lord's name that we pray. Amen. Well, Easter mornings for me growing up always began with a gathering of sorts and continued to, to have different gatherings. In our home on Easter mornings, we would go and gather eggs that had my parents had hidden around our front yard or backyard. We would gather our Easter baskets and just sort of dig into all of the tasty treats and candies that our parents or the Easter bunny, excuse me, had left for us. And we always would then gather our, our new Easter clothes and attire. Uh, we always got a new outfit every Easter morning so that we can go to worship in something new. As that morning went on, we would go and gather with our church family in worship. And it's interestingly, uh, or interesting, that Easter has always been, at least in my experience, the largest gathering for worship that our church has had in the calendar year. Everybody is there in their best Easter attire, 
And always in those worship services growing up, there was something unique about the service, whether it was an added element of a choir or an artist that was performing. There was always something special and unique about that service. There was this energy and enthusiasm in the room as we would gather as the body of Christ. And then later in the afternoon and early evening, we would gather with our extended families to have just a delicious celebratory meal. We, we pulled out all of the stops, had all of the side dishes there so that we can share in the celebration of Easter as a family together. Easter is a cause for celebration. There are always more people gathered for worship, more people gathered around the dinner table. Everyone was in a good mood. The tone of the day embodied what Easter is all about. Victory and hope has come into the world through the empty tomb. And I imagine each of you sitting at home have your own Easter traditions that you remember participating in growing up. And I'm sure many of them had to do with gatherings gathering around the table to decorate eggs, gathering eggs in the front yard, gathering with your own church and with your own family. One of my sort of personal traditions that I engage with every single Easter is to sit down and just read 1 Corinthians 15 each Easter morning. And that chapter culminates with this rhetorical declaration, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Each year, as I personally exit the sort of calendric uh, season that we know as Lent, and this morning I, I fully indulged myself in about five cups of coffee, which I was fasting from for the past 40 days, but each year, those words of Paul sort of resonate with me as I enter into the Easter season. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? If I'm being honest a little bit this morning, sitting in this empty sanctuary, knowing that I'm not going to be gathering later around the table with my family, it feels almost as if the threat of death is very close and very near. And I don't necessarily feel the sense of victory and triumph that usually accompanies Easter celebrations. And I don't want to recognize that, right? Not just because I don't believe that God is victorious. After all, he is risen. He is risen indeed. But I want to recognize that reality for us this morning for three reasons. One, because it's just true. is that there's a stirring in my heart that just doesn't feel as celebratory as I wish that it was. But two, I, I don't want us to trivialize the suffering and anxiety the world is feeling in this moment, in this historical moment. I don't want to cheapen the gospel, and I don't want to cheapen the suffering of people in the world by, by pretending like what is going on in this moment isn't a big deal at all, because it is a big deal. But perhaps most importantly, I want to recognize this because I want us to understand that this Easter feels much more like that first Easter morning than it does uh, than our traditional Easter mornings. You see, on that first Easter morning, there was no gathering of Jesus' followers. There's no anticipation of something exciting that was about to happen. No one decorated or hid eggs. See, we don't see the two Marys in our gospel text this morning putting on their Sunday's best to go and worship the resurrected Lord. In fact, they're surprised to meet Jesus that first Easter morning. 
And actually what we see in the gospel is the opposite of all of our traditions happening. You see, what we see in the gospel is that Jesus' disciples, they have fled and scattered from the city. They are not gathering. There isn't excitement, but there rather is this deep sense of anguish and sadness about what has all transpired. In Mark's gospels, the Marys are headed to the tomb of Jesus, not to celebrate, but to adorn and anoint his body with spices because he had died. And they aren't wearing their Easter best for worship. They're actually headed to a cemetery. And that, to me, is a striking thing about the Easter story this morning, is that Easter happens in a cemetery. You see, the central event of history doesn't happen in a populated city. It it isn't televised for the masses to watch or live stream. It doesn't take place in elaborately decorated and adorned sacred space. It occurs in a place that represents sorrow and grief and death and loss and suffering. It takes place in a moment like the one that we are globally standing in right now. You see, we find in the gospel this morning that that Mary and Mary are headed to the tomb of Jesus to go and see where Jesus had been laid. It isn't coincidental that Matthew describes their reason for going to the tomb as wanting to see where Jesus had been laid. If you were to reread the passage that we read this morning, you would see that this idea of seeing or the word to see is mentioned six additional times in these 10 verses. In one sense, they're going to go see physically the tomb where Jesus had been laid. But the gospel writers, and Matthew in particular, often use this imagery of sight and blindness to describe one's understanding or lack of understanding. To see is to understand, and to be blind or not see is to to lack understanding of what is going on. And I imagine Mary and Mary going to the tomb to linger in an effort to try and understand what has just happened. Their teacher, their Lord, This one that they loved, who just a week ago was celebrated, his entry into Jerusalem is now dead. And I imagine like many of us who've gone to the burial sites of loved ones, they're going to try and gain some clarity or some understanding or perspective on what all has just happened. They're seeking to try and contemplate and understand why their beloved teacher is dead. But they begin to understand and see something very different. See, what they physically see is an angel from heaven. What they physically see is a stone rolled away. What they physically see is an empty tomb. What they physically see is the resurrected Lord Jesus. And though we cannot physically see these same things, I want us to consider and reflect on this this morning is what it is that we can understand, what it is we can see that they too understood in that historical moment. There's really just two things that I want us to grasp this morning. And the first is this, is we can see in this story, in this resurrection event, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. What we see and what we can understand from this moment in history is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Have you ever experienced the fear of separation from someone that you love? You just have an anxiety to be apart from or to be distant from somebody that you love. I remember one of the most significant conversations I had in my life came during my senior year 
of college. And I remember in those months leading up to this conversation, kind of coming to terms with the fact that so much of my life had been lived in contradiction with itself. So I was a professing Christian. I was a committed, quote-unquote, follower of Jesus. But there were parts of my life that were anything but reflecting of this thing that I claimed to be. I had, up until that point, done what I believe was a good job of sort of separating out these two components. Here's the sort of Christian, committed follower of Jesus, Aaron, and here is this other Aaron that isn't so Christian. And part of my resistance, I think, in confronting and confessing this truth about my life, this duality that existed in my life, was a fear that in so doing, in confessing or sharing what was actually going on with me, there would be this sense of rejection from the people that I loved. If they really knew me, I thought, then they wouldn't love me or care for me or respect me as much as they had. Um, but I got to this point in my life where I was willing to put that rejection, so I was willing to risk that rejection in an effort to actually be loved and known for the the mess that my life actually was, the mess of the person that I actually was. And so I remember hitting up a good friend, wanting to sort of share all of these reflections that I've had on my life in recent months and weeks. And when I met with them, I began to share the sort of inner conflict that I was feeling and sensing, giving them a sort of total picture, bird's eye view of what my life actually was like, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. And their response, I think, still to this day, just amazes me. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. There wasn't a dismissiveness as if it wasn't a big deal at all. But there was this insistence that regardless of what I had done, regardless of the life that I was living, regardless of the things that I was sharing with them, that they were still going to be my friend and they were still going to love me. But they could do so now in a way that they totally knew me. And it was a profound moment for me. See, I think one of the great misconceptions of Easter is that this event represents and offers the world their get-out-of-jail-free card. As if because of Easter, we no longer have to go to the bad place, and we instead can go to the good place. But that's not what we see in Jesus' resurrection. What we ought to see in Jesus' resurrection is that regardless of our sin, regardless of our brokenness, regardless of the death that we experience because of these things, nothing can separate us from the love of God. You see, the ultimate consequence of sin is death. And what we find in the resurrection event is that death, even death, cannot separate us from the love of God. And this is what motivates Paul to write arguably the greatest words ever penned in Romans chapter 8, where he writes, can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced, he goes on, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Easter brings us this news, this great news, that nothing can separate us from God's love. 
But there's a second thing that I think we see in the resurrection event, and that is this, that God's love makes renewed life possible today. That God's love makes renewed life possible today. The final book of the Bible, Revelation, envisions a new world where God will redeem all things. We often talk about this new world as heaven, and we anticipate our entry into it one day where God is going to make all things new. And Revelation 21 actually describes that new world and that new creation this way. John writes in Revelation, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. See, we often read these words as words of future hope. And I want to affirm that certainly is true. This, is, this anchors our hope in the future as people, as the people of God. But this is the amazing, shocking, and surprising thing that God does on Easter. As God inserts into the present moment and present time a foretaste of the future hope that we have. That is, Jesus' resurrection is the launching pad of God's new creation in the midst of the world today. Or as scholar N.T. Wright says it, Easter was when hope in person surprised the world by coming forward from the future into the present. God's new creation isn't just something that we're waiting for. It's the reality that we can live in today. But what does any of this sort of theological nuance have to do with us? It means this, in very practical terms, that hope for new life for you and for our world isn't off in some distant future. Transformation, change, newness, reconciliation, redemption, salvation, these are available to us today. We're not waiting in some holy waiting room anticipating our name to be called to receive these gifts from God. Is what we discover in the resurrection is that God has brought hope into the very present moments of our lives through the person of Jesus, renewing us and leading us to a full life. But what's more is that hope isn't just a gift that we receive. It becomes the gift that we have to offer the world that is in desperate need of it. You see, when the angel meets Mary and Mary, he doesn't simply deliver to them good news. He's, he actually commissions them, go forth and bear witness to this good news. Jesus is risen. When I first came to our church just under a year ago, which is so crazy because I can't believe it's been almost a year now. But one of the things that I tried to do was meet with and chat with various folks in our congregation to hear the stories that have shaped and formed our history, that shape and form our imaginations of what it means to be the church. And there was this one story that I heard from multiple people that absolutely blew my mind. Several years ago, there was a guy in our church who was diagnosed with cancer and as he began to go through his treatments, he was receiving them down in Los Angeles, which is about an hour and a half away from where our congregation is located. 
And as he began to progress through his treatments and care, he began to do um, chemotherapy. And as he sort of entered into this phase of his treatment, his blood cell count and his platelet count began to drop pretty significantly, which isn't, from my understanding, uncommon for people receiving chemotherapy. But his count, uh, his blood cell count and his platelet count began to drop so significantly that he needed a lot of blood transfusions. And because he needed so many different blood transfusions, the doctors and nurses that were caring for him asked him if he would contact friends and family who would be able to donate blood uh, for him as he went through his treatments. And, and so this was expressed to the pastor of the church, Pastor Dan, hello if you're watching, by the way. And the pastor shared it with our congregation here. And the surprising, amazing thing to me is that the church in that moment revealed itself as the church. It is that people from our faith community began to commute down to LA on a weekly basis for months to donate blood for this guy's transfusion. And this just went on and on and on and on until his cancer went into remission. I remember him sitting in my office telling me this story, and I was absolutely floored. Like, who sits through L.A. traffic to donate blood for somebody that they love and they're not even really, like, related to by blood? But this is what it means to be the church that follows a resurrected Lord. Is we don't passively look at the world and people's sufferings and pains and needs and just pray for them and give them this message that one day things will be better for you in the future. Is that what it means to follow and be the church of a resurrected Jesus is that we engage now in the present times trying to alleviate the sufferings and pain of the world. Is that we try now to bring renewed life into the world today. And we do it by participating in loving actions that bring about redemption for people and communities that we are a part of. You see, God wants to and can bring renewed life to you this day. And as a part of that, what he wants to do in us as a church and in you is make you an extension of hope in the world. That you can be an agent of transformation and new life and new creation today. This is what we see in Easter. We cannot be separated from God's love and renewed, transformed life is possible today. The only question is, are we going to simply see this news or are we going to see this news? Do we hear it or do we understand it deeply and personally? Do you see and deeply understand that God's love isn't just generally for the world, but it's for you specifically as an individual. He isn't waiting to love just the person you think you ought to be, right? God loves the person that you actually are today, and there's nothing that you've done, there's nothing that you've thought, there's no experience that you've had, there's nothing that's been formed in you today that could ever separate you from God's love. But do you understand and receive that personally today? Do you see God's love for you? Do you see and deeply understand that God doesn't just want to renew the world generally, but God wants to bring new life in your life personally? 
the life-changing, life-giving work of God isn't available to some abstract crowd or some group that's watching our service online. It is extended to you personally today. And there's no place that you've traveled, there's no action that you've taken that is greater than God's redemptive love. And he can transform your life today. Do you see God's redemptive love for you? Do you see and deeply understand that God doesn't just want to use other people to bring hope and transformation in the world? Do you see in this text that God has called you in your life situation, in your relationships that you have, with the network that you have, and the job that you have, with the people you know, with the city that you reside in? Do you know deeply and see deeply that God wants to use you as an extension of his redemptive work in the world. You don't need to have some special skill or some influential position to be an extension of God's hope. You simply need to live in obedient response to God's love. This news isn't just for anyone. It is for you and it is for us. And though we find ourselves in the least Eastery Easter we've experienced in quite some time or may ever experience, we find ourselves in a cultural moment much like that first Easter morning. And it reminds us that this good news, that nothing can separate us from God's love and that renewed life is possible today, it isn't just for those who have it all together. It isn't just for perfect people this good news is proclaimed each year to those of us who are a mess. It's proclaimed to those of us who feel as though God is distant. It's proclaimed to those of us who need parts of our lives made new. It's proclaimed to the sick. It's proclaimed to us who feel as though all hope is lost. It's proclaimed to those who are in need of God to do something surprising and unforeseen in the world. It is proclaimed to a world that is in darkness. And every Easter, we're reminded that love and hope aren't just abstract concepts that come into the world. Love and hope took on flesh. Love and hope endured the cross. Love and hope were vindicated in their victory over death. Love and hope have a name, and it is Jesus Christ. And God's love and God's hope for renewed life are caught up in this resurrected one that we call Jesus. And those who place their faith in him find the love of God transforming them into something new. This God of the cross, this God of the empty tomb invites you to place your faith in him this morning. Whether for the first time or the millionth time, would you place your faith in our resurrected Lord? 